know, from time to time, God's servants call for a day of fasting. Uh, we see that in the Bible. We'll see some examples of that today. Uh, we know that Mr. Herbert Armstrong, from time to time, would call for a day of fasting. And Dr. Meredith has done so as well. And I'm sure that as time goes by, no matter who is in that position, there will be times to call for fasting. And especially as we go forward into a very dangerous world, as we see today, into a very scary world in many ways. But fasting is an important tool that God has given to each and every one of us, to us individually and collectively. Fasting in the world is almost never done biblically. I grew up in a typical Protestant background. In the military, they just had the Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish churches on base. I think in one place they had a Lutheran church because there were enough Lutherans, but generally speaking, it was just Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish. And I never heard of anybody in the Protestant denomination ever fasting. Now, my friends who are Catholics or Lutherans did fast. They fasted for 40 days, and I guess 40 nights as well. But fasting meant giving up bubble gum or something that uh, was uh, somewhat significant or important to them. And so that 40 days leading up to the, uh, the crucifixion as they have it, uh, they call it Lent. I'm not sure where they found that in the Bible, but anyway, uh, clearly it's not a biblical injunction. But the idea of fasting, just giving up bubble gum or something, is certainly not the kind of fast that we read of in Scripture. Uh, you know, one of the things that people give up is coffee. And in Canada, they have a, a place called Tim Hortons. If you've ever been to Canada, you will become familiar with Tim Hortons. It's a poor man's Starbucks, you might say. A working man's Starbucks. And very, very popular. Uh, I've uh, visited it many times over the years. But they sell coffee and donuts and cookies, and they do have a few sandwiches and soups for lunch, but basically it's coffee and donuts. It's the kind of place that you normally see an American uh, trooper, uh, several policemen sitting in the, the front of as they are taking their break. But they have something called roll up the rim to win. And that is every year, once a year, they have on the rim of the coffee cup, the paper cup, you roll it up, and you can win a car, or you can win a donut, or a cup of coffee, or you can win what I usually win, which was uh, try again, or what was something, uh, please try, please, they always had please try again. But every once in a while you win a cup of coffee or something. Now, they have been accused, and I don't know how true it is, that they actually institute this roll up the, roll up the rim to win at the time of Lent, so that people would not give up coffee or donuts. And it does make certain sense, and it always comes around that time. Not exactly the day, but it will fall during that Lenten period, as they call it, to make sure, I guess, that people don't give those things up. So the world is, a, is an interesting place when you think about it. There are other kinds of fasts in this world, such as hunger strikes. Uh, there was a, a lady up in Canada uh, who was going on strike, uh, starvation diet or whatever, and she never seemed to lose any weight, but uh, she looked about as, 
as big as she was at the end of a long period of time, but trying to get attention. We have uh, individuals in prisons that will go on a hunger strike to force people to have their way. But this is not fasting the way that God wants us to fast. And, you know, even in the church of God, we can fast in the wrong way if we're not careful. And God warns us about that. And so it's important that we understand proper fasting. Today we're going to see that fasting is a command from God. He commands us to fast. And he commands us to fast for once a year for sure, but more than that in reality. We'll see that many of the important events of history involved fasting. And we'll look at how to properly fast. Fasting is a biblical command. We know that it's commanded on the Day of Atonement. I don't have to turn over to Leviticus 23 because we've read it many times. And if we haven't, we'll be reading it in a few weeks, not too far away, a month or so. Uh, we'll be a month and a half. We'll be fasting on the Day of Atonement. And so we'll read it at that time. But that's one time that is very important for us to fast. In the New Testament, in Luke, the fifth chapter, Luke 5 and verse 33, it says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? It's easy for people to read over this and just stop right there and say that, oh, well, Christ relieved us from that responsibility of fasting. And when I think of the individuals who left the uh, fellowship that we were once a part of, a larger fellowship that we were once a part of, I wonder how many of them ever fast anymore, even whether they pray or study. Because that seems like that's hard to do. And you know, fasting is hard. It's harder for some people than others. It's harder at different ages. When you're young, sometimes it, it affects you greatly. Sometimes older people have a difficult time. Sometimes people of all ages, just because of their physical makeup, find it very difficult to fast. And so it's easy to say, well, this is unnecessary. And and uh, they ask, well, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast? But And they, they do it often, but the disciples of Christ didn't. And Jesus responded in verse 34, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will ta be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. There's a very important lesson here that I think sometimes is missed, especially by newer folks. Uh, I'm sure I didn't catch it first time I read it. I, I had to have it explained to me. But what he's saying here is that the purpose of fasting is to draw close to the bridegroom, to draw close to God, to draw close to Jesus Christ. And since Christ was with them in the flesh, right there with them, working with them, instructing them, sometimes correcting them. Uh, they were close to him. They could see the miracles. They could see all those things that were done. They didn't need to fast at that time. Now, they did fast, no doubt. 
We know that they would have on the Day of Atonement, but they didn't fast often, once a month or once every two weeks or whatever the routine was of that day. But he said that when the bridegroom was taken away, when he was gone, it says, then they will fast in those days. Now, if we're going to follow the instructions of Jesus Christ, we're going to recognize that you and I have a need to fast from time to time and to probably fast more often than most of us do because it's so easy to get busy and you want to fast because you know you should, but then, you know, one week goes by and then you think, okay, well, I'll do it this week and something comes up and and it's very difficult, isn't it, sometimes? And you don't want to pick a, a day during the week when you're working, especially if you're working physical labor or just in the world where you, you have a, a job and you have to interrelate with other people. You don't want to take a day like that. And besides, you don't have the time for the prayer part of it or the, uh, the study or the meditation that really should accompany fasting. You're just simply going hungry, and we don't want to do it that way. So this is something that we have to come to grips with. And Dr. Meredith talked about, you know, crying out to God to ask us to show those things that we do not see, not just the sins we see, but those sins which we don't, and really ask God to help us to see those things. And maybe that's something that it would do us well to meditate on, to think about it. How often do I fast? How often do I develop that relationship with my Creator? In Matthew, the sixth chapter... A very direct command, Matthew 6 and verse 16, Jesus said, moreover, when you fast, he didn't say if you fast, but when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, this has been read many times over. But I never cease to be amazed how people who have been in the church for a while, who have heard this, and you know they hear it, try to find ways to let you know that they're fasting. Uh, the little things like, uh, uh, pardon my breath today, I'm fasting, or uh, whatever it might be, uh, they, they let you know that they're fasting. Now, there's a time when it's appropriate and right for a lesson to be passed on to someone else. Obviously, if you're living in the same house with other people, with a mate, with children, it's not really easy to, to hide that. And you wouldn't necessarily need to in that particular case because even with your children, it's good for them to know that mom and dad take this seriously, that they practice what they preach. And so, obviously, with children, you may not make them fast in the same way that we would, from time to time, they may miss a meal, and it depends on age appropriate, and every parent has to work that out accordingly, but uh, we need to be certainly compassionate toward our children, realizing that they're not going to get the same thing out of it that we do, but they need to see that example of fasting from mom and dad. But when we fast, to make it look like we're fasting, Jesus is telling us here that our reward is the praise of men. So we could fast. You and I could fast. You know, any of us, collectively, we can fast. If it's to be seen by others, that's all the reward we'll get. But if we are fasting to be with the bridegroom, to be close to Jesus Christ, to be close to God the Father, if that is the purpose of our fast, uh, 
then we'll have good fruit from it. Something good will come from it. It will be a profitable fast. In the book of Joel, we read of a time when um, things are going to get even worse than they are. And really, we have it pretty good right now, to be honest. Uh, There are places in this world where it is not so good. But in the book of Joel, the second chapter, really the whole book of Joel is talking about the day of the Lord, the day when God intervenes. Notice in verse verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And it goes on to describe certain things about the day of the Lord. Down in verse 11, the latter part of it, it says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And then in verse 12, it says, Now therefore, says the, Lord, the Eternal, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Very often in that culture, they would tear their garments. And we see some of the servants of God that did so. And so tearing of their garments was not wrong. But if it was just an outward show, then it would do no good because he's saying here, rend or tear your heart. A fast needs to get down to the very heart and core of what we are, who we are, and what our problems are. So he says, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You know, there was one individual that we'll read of here, Uh, in just a little bit, who understood that when it says, who knows if he will relent or turn and relent. This individual knew that his fast may uh, make a difference in what he was fasting about, but it may not. He understood that, but he did fast, as we shall see in a little bit later. Let's take a look at some of those examples of fasting that we find in Scripture. Many years ago, I was babysitting. Uh, I don't remember why I was babysitting. Uh, Usually girls do that, but I remember one time I did it to relieve my sister of something. But uh, I I was having to be over at somebody's house, and uh, the the child, I don't even remember who it was exactly, but they they were asleep. And I I remember studying fasting because I I happened to be fasting at that time. And so I, I got a concordance out. I had one. I took one with me. And I opened it up, and I looked at the words fast, fasting, fasted. Now, of course, when you look at fast, you read about uh, fast horses and, and hold fast and everything like that, but sometimes it refers to what we're doing today. And fasting and fasted. And I was amazed at how many important events occurred during history, during biblical history, in conjunction with a fast. Let's just be reminded of some of them. For example, Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. 
and the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. And how he came down that second time from the mountain and his face shone. And he had those new tablets. We know that Moses fasted during 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, John O'Gwen in his Bible study course points out that it was probably three different times, but at least two, two times there. But we know that there was a time of fasting involving that. And when you think of the, the magnitude of that event, of the giving of the commandments and the Mosaic Covenant and so forth, that was a huge event in history. Another very huge event was in Daniel, the ninth chapter, the 70 weeks prophecy. You read in Daniel 9, verse 3, that Daniel was fasting at that time. And that's when God gave him this 70 weeks prophecy that identified the very year that Jesus Christ would show up and begin his end time ministry, or his, I say end time, begin the ministry at that time, at his first coming. That prophecy is no small thing. It's a big prophecy, and it goes all the way to the end. If you go a little further in the 10th chapter, in verse 3, we see that Daniel was fasting again. And the end result of that was Daniel, the 11th chapter, which is the longest, most detailed single prophecy in the Bible. We say longest. You know, we have the, the book of Revelation, but it's, it's broken up a little bit here and there. But in this particular case, you have Daniel 11, this long chapter, 45 verses or so, and it, it goes into great detail about all the intrigue that would take place between the king of the north and the king of the south. And if you've never studied that, get a, a, a commentary out and just go through that. And there are names like Cleopatra and Anthony. They're not found in the Scripture, but they are described in the Scriptures. And you see this detail of how all this intrigue would take place and this backstabbing among the the leaders of the, the king of the north and the king of the south and how they would fight against each other. And it brings it all the way down to the very end time from about verse 40 to 45. It's talking about our time yet ahead of us, the time that leading up to the very end. And so this was a very important prophecy that was given there, and it was given at a time when Daniel was fasting. We're all very familiar with the book of Esther, and how God saved the, the Jews at that time. We think of how Esther said to her companions, look, you fast, let's fast for three days. And I'll go into the king. And if I live, fine. If I don't, fine. You know, that was a very serious situation because it's hard for us to imagine in our world today why the queen wouldn't be able to go into the king without being called upon. But there were no doubt other uh, there were concubines and various other ones. And some of these kings had bad tempers. You can read of Nebuchadnezzar, for example, having a pretty bad temper, and some of these others. And they were always going to turn somebody into a dunghill or a house into a dunghill, or they were going to take their head off or throw them into the lion's den. And so when you read the fourth chapter there, on into the fifth chapter of uh, Esther, you find that, this was a serious thing with her. She had a real legitimate concern that if she went into the king without being called upon by him, that she could die. And so she asked the others to fast for her. 
for three days, not just for 24 hours, but for three days. We sometimes pass over the fact that Mordecai, even before he uh, talked to or sent messages back and forth to Esther, he was fasting already when he realized, and not only uh, Mordecai, but the Jews in general, when they heard this decree that they were going to be destroyed, they immediately went into fasting. In Acts, the 10th chapter, we'll turn over there, Acts 10, we're very familiar with with Cornelius and this sheet that was let down from the uh, in this vision. And we can start with chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms or gifts, presents, uh, donations of various sorts generously to the people, and prayed to God always. That's a, uh, a very important thing there. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. And he told him to send men to Joppa, to uh, send them to Peter. We read then of Peter going up on the housetop. We're very familiar with that. Uh, we have sermons on that from time to time to help people understand that we that this is not a uh, an injunction that allows us to eat unclean meats, uh, which some have taken it to mean, uh, wrongly so. But Peter said, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He was wondering what the vision should mean in verse 17, verse 19. When he thought about the vision, then God indicated to him through his spirit to go down. There was somebody there, and three men were there waiting for him. And he asked what it was about, and they told him about Cornelius. And so he went back to Cornelius. And then we read in verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And that's the key verse there. I'm not trying to expound the whole chapter because I want to get to something here that just follows. It says, therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said in verse 30, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour and at the ninth hour. Remember, it started at the ninth hour when the vision came. And now it's four days later and it's at the ninth hour. He says, I was fasting at that time until this hour. So isn't it interesting that God called when, when God called the first Gentile, he was a man of integrity. He was a very generous man. He prayed to God always, but he also fasted. And he wasn't making a big deal of it. This was an appropriate time to say this because of what's happening. And he said he was fasting at that time. So think about it. When God called the first true Gentile in that sense, I mean, there are others who are... Uh, what they call it, believers or uh, uh, that had converted to Judaism that were, were called into the church. But when we have the opening of the door for the Gentiles, 
we find that God did so with a man who was fasting at the time. Have you ever thought that sometime when you're fasting, God might do something remarkable with or through you? I, I don't think we should sit back and start expecting that some, you know, something great like this is going to happen in the sense that that God is going to use you as, as the very first of whatever it might be. But things happen when you fast. They really do. They don't always happen the way you think they're going to. I remember a case where we had a, a young child who was sick many, many years ago. And the parents had called about uh, the child, and they were worried about him. And then they called up the local deacon who had various home remedies, and they called up this other person. And for a period of several days, they were calling all kinds of people, wanting to find all these natural cures for everything. And so they finally took him to a, a chiropractic doctor that was in the church. And I had fasted about this because I was very concerned. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really important at times to take your children to the doctor. It was a lot of years ago, and people didn't always do that. And uh, this chiropractor called me up, and he, he said he had talked to them. He said, I'm very concerned. He said, uh, if, you, if you, uh, you ask me what's wrong, I think the child's having death rattles. I think the child is going to die. So I thought, well, here I've fasted about it. And that very evening after I broke the fast, you get this bad news. And so I, I called up the family. I said, you need to get this child to the doctor. This isn't just a matter of, of life and death in one sense, but it's a matter of, you know, you, you've got a legal problem here along with the rest of it. That life and death is, of course, more important. But it was a bad situation. So they took the child to the doctor. He looked at him. He was not as sick as, as this uh, chiropractor who had actually not actually seen him in person but only kind of heard in the background and, and heard the stories and everything. He was not as sick as they thought. They gave him some medicine. They uh, took it home. They, they gave him some medicine for a, a day or so, and nothing changed. And they called me again. And, you know, it was at that time that I, I think God put it in my mind. I said, look. It's that you are not exercising faith. You're running here and there and someplace else. You're trusting this remedy, that remedy, another remedy, including the doctors. And I said, this is not faith. What you need to do is just sit still and, and trust that God will take care of it, and he will. I don't remember all the exact words, but basically I think I said, shut up, sit down, and, and uh, have faith. And, you know, they called the next morning. The child was fine. Now, sometimes when we fast, the answer doesn't come immediately. Sometimes when we fast, it doesn't work out the way that we think it will work out. I remember another case up in Canada where we had three men who were dying of cancer. One of them was in his 90s. He was quite elderly. Another one was... Uh, I don't know, about 50 or so, and the other one was a brand-new member. One was a brand-new member, and, and this other one had been a long-time member in the church, and then the older fellow who'd also been in the church a long time. But I remember we, we asked everybody to fast about it. 
And people did, sincerely. And you know, all three, within a short period of time, died. And it's easy to say, well, that didn't work. But you know, I think it did. I know it certainly did for me. Because the older fellow had been around. He was in his 90s. He was going to die sometime. And he had tremendous faith. And he was confident. He was, he was fine. He said, I've lived a good long life. If I die, I die. The newer member had such a wonderful countenance. He was always smiling. He was upbeat. He had family members that uh, would visit him and others, and they, they would see that he always had this very upbeat uh, approach to life. And he was an example of dignity in dying. And the other fellow told me as we were visiting my wife and I in his hospital room, uh, the thunderstorm had just passed by and it was hot because there was no air conditioning in the, the room there and the windows had been closed. And he said, you know, I'm not looking for God to heal me. I don't really want God to heal me. I, I'm ready for the kingdom of God. But he said, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Because for 20 years, he said, I've just been drifting and I don't think I would have been in the kingdom of God if this had not come upon me to wake me up. You know, he saw a bigger picture. And when I look back on those three, I've thought, you know, if something like that happens to me, I hope that I can, I can deal with it with the bravery, with the dignity, and with the big picture that those three men had. It was... Some would say, well, it didn't work, the fasting failed. I don't think it did. I think there was a lesson in it for all of us. Now, some can say, well, that's a cop-out. Okay, if you want to be cynical, that's fine. But I think that we have to recognize that there's a bigger picture that God is working out here. And sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, whether we pray or even whether we fast, but we have to recognize the fasting, if we do it right, does make a difference. And there's a time we can look back and we can see why certain things happened. And sometimes we can't understand it at the moment. Another major event is in the 13th chapter of Acts, Acts 13. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, verse 1, there were certain prophets and teachers, and it lists them there. The very last one that was mentioned is Saul who we know later is Paul. In Acts 13, 2, they ministered to the, the Lord and fasted as they did. So they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and uh, they sailed to Cyprus. Now, it's interesting here that this was uh, something that occurred. There were these individuals at Antioch, leaders at Antioch, and they were fasting, they were praying, and it became clear some way, by the power of God's Spirit, it became clear to them that they should send two men out on a journey, Barnabas and Saul. 
And it's only after this that we learn that Paul and Barnabas are apostles. Notice the 14th chapter, verse 14. They're on their first journey. This is their journey that they're sent out on. And it says in verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, We don't need to know the rest of the story there right now. The point is that it mentions for the first time, uh, well, actually, uh, you can actually go back to verse 4. The multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. So that's really the first time in verse 4. But in verse 14, it specifically mentions Paul and Barnabas as apostles. And so it would appear from everything that we could discern from this that when they were fasting and praying back in chapter 13, that they didn't just send them out with uh, no authority, no responsibility, but they were sent out as apostles. Whether they actually laid hands on or well, they laid hands, we know that, it says so. Whether they ordained them as, as apostles, I don't know. But that certainly seems to be the case. Because they did fast, they prayed, they laid hands on them, and then they sent them out. They commissioned them to go out, and after that, they're called apostles. And so it would seem that that's a pretty important event as well, since the Apostle Paul wrote 14 books of the, the New Testament. And much of the New Testament is about the work of the Apostle Paul. That is huge. Back in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, the first chapter, Nehemiah 1, We find here this man, Nehemiah. You, you have to love this fellow. Uh, he was one brave individual. I, I always like uh, reading about Nehemiah. But it begins that uh, it's the words of Nehemiah. Uh, it came to pass in the month uh, Chislu or Kislu, Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judea. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, this is verse 3, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and I mourned. For many days, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, it seems to indicate here that it was he was, you know, weeping and mourning for many days, for days, for many is in italics, but for days, that his fasting may have been off and on or an extended period of time. We don't know for sure, but he certainly was fasting and praying, and prayer always goes along with fasting. Uh, and he says here that while he was doing that, uh, here's what he said. This is the important part. We'll get to the other important part later. But uh, here's what he was saying in his prayer, in his fasting. I said, I pray, eternal God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night, 
Now, when you read this, don't you get the sense that he's in great earnestness about this? This is not a sleepy time prayer, but he's in earnestness about it. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. This is another component to it, and that is discovering our sins, confessing our sins. We find that over and over again when people are fasting, the servants of God are fasting, they are confessing the sins of their own and of their their homes and their nation. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he cries out to God in this prayer. He continues, verse 10, Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant, servant, singular, let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then we have the statement, for I was the king's cupbearer. So here was a very trusted servant of the king. The, the cupbearers at certain times down through history have been individuals who not only served the wine, but they tasted it first so that if anybody snuck some poison into it or if they themselves tried to, they'd be the first to die. Uh, this was a very important position that Nehemiah had. And the king, who was no foolish individual, uh, would be able to pick up on, read body language and so forth. So he prayed this at this time of fasting. And then he went in to do his work. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, he'd never been sad in his presence before. He'd always been cheerful. You ever know people like that? They're always cheerful. Sometimes we have on the switchboard our young ladies, and they're always cheerful. And suddenly, if they're not cheerful, you know something's wrong. Well, apparently, Nehemiah was a very cheerful individual. And he had never been sad in the king's presence before. But verse 2, therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. You can understand that because if the king sees that his servants are not happy, if they're not happy, they may not be happy with him. And if they're not happy with him, they may do him harm. Be able to be bribed or just do it for whatever reason. And so he was afraid. And he said to the king, may the king live forever. That's a good start. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Very direct with the king. And the king said to me, what do you request? So what did he do? 
He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. One of those real quickie prayers. God help me. Give me the words as he's taking a deep breath. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and then he goes on to make this request to go to Jerusalem and to build the, uh, the wall there of Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem. In chapter 9, or let me start with chapter 8, we, we are all familiar in Nehemiah the 8th chapter because we read this most of the time at the Feast of Tabernacles, how uh, actually at the end of, of chapter 7, it was the seventh month, and the children of Israel were in their cities. This after the, the wall has been built. And then chapter 8, verse 1, all the children of, or the people gathered together as one man in the open square. And Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses. And they, uh, you can read all this. You'll probably hear this again at the Feast of Tabernacles this year. But you can read through it if you'd like. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles. They first of all kept the Feast of Trumpets, and then they read that they should keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so in verse 17, so the whole assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. And also day by day during the feast, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is from the twenty I'm sorry, from the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and the last great day is the twenty second day of the seventh month. And we're all familiar with this particular passage, usually. I say we're all, most of us are. But something that is not really focused on as much is what happens right after that. Because in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month. So it just continues right afterwards. So two days after they had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. I would guess that this was probably a Sabbath day, that the last day of unleavened bread probably fell on a Thursday. I said last unleavened bread. Let me try that again. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me try that a third time. The Feast of Tabernacles had ended, and the last great day, that seventh feast, had ended on the 22nd, probably on a Thursday. And they're coming together two days later, and they're fasting, so it must have been communicated to them, all of them fasting. And it would make sense it would have been the Sabbath day on that occasion. But the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Notice here again that with fasting there is a confession of sins and the iniquities not just of their own but of their, their whole lineage and their nation. And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God, or the eternal their God. So they divided the day up somehow, a fourth for uh, reading the book of the law, 
and then another fourth for confessing or praying. Uh, no doubt it doesn't, it's not really specific there, but it is interesting that they divide the day up there in a certain way, and we'll see that a little bit later here, the significance perhaps of that. This was a time when they made a covenant with God. And you read of that, uh, the, the covenant, the, the confessing of sins and the history and so forth, and then the covenant, and they made three points uh, that they would not uh, marry outside of Israel. Uh, it was very clearly there, had to do with the, the whole, uh, the culture, but also the uh, the religions and, and so forth. But in this particular case, there was a cultural thing that seems to be there as well. Uh, they would not do business on the Sabbath. And when you say do business, it meant their, their regular shopping, their routine shopping. When you read it carefully, what was stated there, it's not saying that you can't have a, a cup of coffee on the Sabbath, uh, especially if you're driving a long distance or something uh, it, it, to get to services. It, it was a type of thing where they were doing their shopping in Chapter 13 when you read that. And, and also that they would tithe faithfully and the other financial things that they had to do, uh, those three things they said they would do, and every one of them, they broke that covenant. But for a time, no doubt, they kept it. But they made that covenant, and it was an association there with a day of fasting. We also have the example of the death of Saul and Jonathan when they were killed, uh, that the nation went into fasting. Uh, David specifically, we see, but others as well. Uh, we have Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, and that was covered by uh, Mr. Ames, uh, I believe it was uh, Mr. Ames a couple weeks ago. Uh, yes, because he talked about their singing and everything uh, going out there, and also it was mentioned in Dr. Meredith's letter that we should read that. Uh, we haven't even touched on Christ fast, have we? where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that challenge by Satan the devil, a great event in history, an important event in history, and how Christ defeated him in that when he was physically weak but spiritually close to God. We have other examples. We have in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, 2 Samuel 12. Here again, we are familiar with this passage, but I wanted to read it a little bit because there are important lessons in there for us. But in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, this is when uh, the prophet Nathan had come to David and convicted him of his sin of adultery and of murder and said that there were going to be uh, three things that would happen as a result of that. Uh, the sword would never depart. He'd raise up adversity, even within his own house. And the child that was born from that adulterous relationship would die. And then it says in verse 15, Nathan departed, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, he fasted for seven days. On the seventh day, 
it came to pass that the child died. So here was a request made by a sincere, heartfelt individual crying out to God that the child would live, and God said no. He knew that God might change his mind, or he believed that he, w he knew that God could, but God didn't. So the elder of the house arose, and they went in him to, uh, I'm sorry, that was to eat. Uh, then the child died uh, on the seventh day. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm, may harm himself in some way. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. And he said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Eternal and worshipped. So even though he'd been fasting, he cleaned up. And then he went, he took time to go back into the house of God. To go into the temple there. And, uh, well, actually not the temple. Uh, yeah, because the temple wasn't built yet. But the house of God, whatever is uh, the house of the eternal, and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Eternal will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? What's the purpose of fasting at this point? Because the reason I was fasting involved the child. I've gotten God's answer. I've gone into him. I've cleaned up. I've gone in. I've discussed it with him. And now it's time to eat. It shows us the purpose of fasting a little bit there and helps us to realize why we fast, just a, a little part of the whole picture. And Judges, the 20th chapter, Judges 20. In, in the 19th chapter, um, we, we read about this Levite, who had this concubine, and things were not going well for them, and she went back home, and she was playing the harlot. and So he went back to, uh, to, to find her and to bring her back home and stayed with her, her father for, apparently they got along great, the father-in-law father and, and uh, this Levite. And finally he leaves, and they find themselves in Gibeah uh, late in the evening. And they're brought into a house, where uh, there's some protection. An old man brought them in, took them in. And after that, we find that the house was assaulted by these perverted men. And they wanted this man to come out that they might know him. And I think we understand that's an old King James expression. That means more than, hi, my name is Frank. It had to do with particular perverted sins. And as it turned out, the man's concubine was given to them, and they abused her all night long. 
She came back, laid down on the porch or the threshold of the, the, the house, and uh, as she's is there, it's, it's morning, the sun has come up. And so in verse 27, chapter 19, when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine falling at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. Now that's a fine example of compassion. Uh, It's hard to comprehend, isn't it, in our day and age? And yet there are people even today that are that cruel. People who do terrible things to their children or their husbands and wives. But there was absolutely no compassion here. She had been abused. First of all, he'd given them over to her, uh, to them. And, And then... She comes back after being abused all night, and he just says, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. Well, she was dead, obviously, as uh, we see here. And so what did he do? He took a knife out, and he hacked her apart into 12 different pieces and sent each piece to a different one of the tribes of Israel. And even at that time, when there was no king in Israel... As you read back in 19.1, it came to pass when there was no king in Israel. Uh, everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. Even in a time like that, this act of finding a part of a body being sent to you was so gross to the people that they came together. And in chapter 20, all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba as well as from the land of Gilead. And they, they gathered together and said, well, what's all this about? He explained it. And so they got all mad at the, the Benjamites at Mizpah uh, or, or at uh, Gibeah. And they, they sent to the children of Israel at Mizpah, uh, the Benjamites. And they said, uh, you know, what are we going to do about this? And uh, turn them over to us so that we can execute them for the, uh, the terrible deed that they had done in, in killing this woman, abusing her and so forth. And the Benjamites would not listen, chapter 20, verse 13. Uh, They said, Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. And instead they, they gathered up their army, and you had two armies ready to come up against each other. The Israelites in general had far more troops than the Benjamites, but the Benjamites were going to be stubborn. They're not going to give up anybody. You know, it wouldn't have been nice if the husband had been, the Levite, had been so so bold and so brave as to protect not only himself but his, his, his concubine. The Benjamites, for all their evils, at least you have to say they had courage. So the end result was that the children of Israel, verse 18, arose and went to the house of God to inquire of God. And they said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? So their question was, they, they already decided what they were going to do. The question was, who should go up first? So God says, okay, you want to know who should go up first? Judah. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and they encamped against Gibeah. And they put the battle in array and they fought the battle and Israel lost 22,000 men. They were, no doubt, shocked that they had lost the battle. 
So verse 22, and the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. So they decided again, we're going to fight against them. But then it says the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord. They've already prepared for the battle until evening. And they asked counsel of the eternal saying, shall I again draw nearer for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against him. Now, what's happening here? When God tells them to do something and it doesn't work out, what's happening? Well, very simply, they'd already made up their mind. They decided they were going to fight against their brother Benjamin. And then, as an afterthought, they asked God. And then, they, after they lose one battle, they put it all in array again, ready to fight against them. And then, as an afterthought, they talked to God and say, okay, well, should we do this or should we not? And God said, Basically, you, you've already decided, so go ahead. So the children of uh, Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out and they slew 18,000 more of the children of Israel. Now we get to verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. So that's their first action now. Instead of setting the battle line in array again, they go to God and they sat there before the eternal and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the eternal. So the children of Israel inquired of the eternal. And God gave them the answer to go up that they would be victorious. You see, when they really sought God with their whole heart, not with their pre-planned agenda. You know, have you ever noticed this, that sometimes people make some really dumb decisions that everybody can see except themselves. And their rationalization is, well, I prayed and fasted about it. And because I prayed and I fasted, I know this is going to work out. But God talks about wise counsel, doesn't he? And when you already decide what you want and you fast about it, that's what these people did. They already had their minds made up what they were going to do. And so when we go to God and truly cry out to him to make a decision, it's very difficult, isn't it? But we have to go to God with an open mind of, God, show me what you want, not what I want. There's a proverb, and I, I've got to mark this because I can't remember where it is exactly. But it says that, Men make plans, but what happens is what God wants. How many times do we chart our course in life not realizing that God has something else in mind? I've known individuals who have ideas of what they want, how they want to serve God. Maybe somebody wants to be a minister. They've decided that, that that's what they want, but that may not be what God wants. And just because you fast about it doesn't mean that you're still not seeking your own will. It takes faith as well, doesn't it? But we see here that when they really cried out to God, when they went to God first and fasted and prayed and offered up offerings and, and sought God's will, then things worked out for them. It didn't work out so well for Benjamin, uh, but... Uh, Benjamites needed to learn their lesson as well, didn't they? They had some problems. 
Okay, let's talk about how to fast. How do we fast? Let's take a look at two fasts. One the right kind and one the wrong kind. In 1 Kings, the 21st chapter. And for sake of time, I'll just set the stage here. This is when Ahab wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard for a vegetable garden. And it, it's a very colorful story there how, how Ahab is uh, all down in the mouth and Jezebel comes along and says, look, you know, you're the king. Let me take care of this. If you're too weak to take care of it, I'll take care of it. So she sets up Naboth and has him killed. And, and notice, here's what she says in verse 9. She wrote in the letter. This is what she wrote on Ahab's behalf. Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with, uh, Naboth with high honors among the people. Now, this had absolutely nothing to do with drawing close to God. She was using fasting as a ploy to get her way, just like sometimes criminals fast for, for their purpose. It's not exactly the same, but it, it's for a whole wrong purpose. This was not why we fast, so that we can set somebody up and have them murdered. But that's what she did. So it, it came to pass, verse 15, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had, was stoned and was dead, the Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Uh, he's not alive, but dead. Then Elijah the Tishbite, verse 17, enters in, and he's told by God to go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel. And he gives him this scathing report on what was done and tells uh, Ahab that uh, he's going to suffer death, uh, he says, uh, let me just read it here, uh, verse 18, uh, go down and uh, th there he is in the vineyard. Uh, verse 19, you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And so Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, my enemy? And he says, I found you. Kind of reminded me of John Wayne. I'm sure he was said about like that. I found you. Because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the eternal. And I'm going to bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And he goes on with this a little bit longer. And then it says here, uh, verse 25, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the eternal because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the eternal had cast out before the children of Israel. Verse 27, so it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about mourning. There was something redeemable about Ahab, in spite of all the rest that he had done. God liked his attitude at this particular point, and he fasted. And when you think about it, that statement, verse 25, that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness, and verse 26 about the abominable idols and everything like that, 
And yet, in this case, the word of the Lord, verse 28, came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring this calamity on his house. So we have two examples. One is Jezebel's call for fasting and a heartfelt humbling of the self before God that Ahab did, and there was a difference. God honored that fasting. Isaiah, the 58th chapter, I'd like to encourage you to read that uh, as you have time because it talks about a wrong kind of fast, fasting for all the wrong reasons, and it shows the right kind of fast. But I'd like to take just a little bit of time here uh, toward the end and reading from Mr. Herbert Armstrong's uh, autobiography, Volume 1. And some of you have no doubt read it, and others may not have, and if you can get a copy of this, I'm sure we have it in the library or the, the church library here or the Living University Library or someplace. I'm sure you can find a copy of it or ask somebody, and they'll make a copy of these pages. But he begins chapter, uh, chapter 22, by saying, never in my life have I faced a more serious problem than the situation uh, that confronted us at the beginning of the year 1930. Not only were we confronted with another lean year economically, with our own personal financial condition at rock bottom, with the whole nation plunging on down, down, down into the depths of the Depression, but it seemed as if we were destitute of faith in God as well. We were within six weeks of the birth of our fourth child. My wife, who had been so miraculously healed in 1927, was now in an alarming condition. She was anemic. Her blood was lacking in iron, and her strength appeared depleted. They had a problem because they had not paid the bill on their previous child's birth, their third child, first son. And the hospital would not allow her to be admitted, even though the doctor said she needed to be. They would not allow her to be admitted uh, until that bill was paid. And this was during the time of the Depression. And so there was really no way they had to, to satisfy that bill. I had prayed for Mrs. Armstrong's healing, but she had not been healed. I had prayed again and again. But there had been no improvement, and time was running out. We were becoming desperate. What was wrong? I had learned that God does heal. We had experienced almost incredible miracles. My wife had been healed before, but why not now? Obviously, God had not changed. He is the same from eternity to eternity. He has promised to heal, and his word is sure. The fault could not be with God. I knew it had to be with me. But where? So often, this is the problem. We, we fail to recognize that the problem is right here. And we tend to blame everybody else but, but here. He said, I knew it had to be with me. But where? I searched my heart. One condition to receiving miraculous healing is that we obey God. And he quotes 1 John 3:22. Uh, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. 
but I had surrendered to obey God's commandments three years before. Faith is the second condition, but I believed as firmly as when God first healed my wife. There was no more time to lose. I had to find the answer. I knew of only one way, fasting and prayer. It was a last-ditch resort. I didn't know how one ought to fast and pray. I had never done it before. But when Jesus' disciples were unable to cast out a demon, Jesus said such result came only by fasting and prayer. So I began to fast. The fasting began or was begun on Sabbath morning. That morning I ate no breakfast. Not knowing how one ought to go about fasting and prayer, I first prayed and asked God to show me the way, to open my understanding. Then, since God speaks to us through His written Word, I began to search the Bible for instruction about fasting. For one hour, with the aid of a concordance, I studied passages of Scripture on the subject of fasting and praying, much of the time on my knees. If you're able to do so, that's... Good to do that, sometimes study on our knees and just talk to God while we're studying. Then for one hour I sat and thought in contemplation, what we call meditation. I turned over in my mind the scriptures I had read. I reflected on my own life in recent months. I tried to compare it with God's way as revealed in the scriptures. Then I spent the next hour in talking to God in prayer. And so I decided to continue in this order. One hour of scripture study. One in contemplation or meditation, and one in prayer. I did not ask once for God to heal my wife as yet. I had been doing that for weeks without result. I was fasting and praying, not for the purpose of bringing pressure on God to force Him to obey my will and give what was asked, but to find out what was wrong with me. I realized we did not need to nag at God. Now I don't have time for it, but you can read the remainder of the of, of the chapter. But he realized that he became too involved with a particular project he, he was involved in, and as he says, God will not play second to anything. And I think that that's something that every one of us has to look at. How do we spend our time? What is our passion in life? And you know, you and I face something. Some of you more than me, because I'm not as technologically oriented. But, but it, you know, we all—if we have email—we we have to fight this. But we get so involved in the stuff that Satan gives us. It isn't just pornography and perversion and all that kind of stuff. It's even stuff that is of some value and proper balance. He throws this stuff at us. People get up before they get out of bed. They're checking their their files, their their smartphones. It's hard to live without them, isn't it? Now I'm not saying that's your problem, but I'm saying it probably some of your problem. Some of you here. Uh, we all have our our shortcomings, but Mr. Armstrong was looking. What's wrong with me? He wasn't trying to nag God to get his way. He was saying, "What's wrong with me?" And after I, I read that, you know, I, I realized that I try to make that a pattern in my life, but I don't have the concentrative power that Mr. Armstrong had. Have you ever tried to just meditate on something for an hour? When I was young, I could. I can't these days, for some reason. I find when I fast, I get tired. And you know, the best thing to do when you're tired is lay down, and take a nap. 
Actually, some of you have been fighting sleep, I guess, but I can't see because of lights. But I'm sure some of you have. You know, the best thing you can do is just put your head down and nod off for about 30 seconds, and then you're okay the rest of the day. That's what I found. That's what I used to do at the auditorium there in Pasadena Civic Auditorium when Dr. Meredith was speaking or Mr. Hill or somebody else. <laughs> you, 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 you had two services, and that smog and the heat would wear you out, and you had to walk back and forth to the campus. You'd come down there in the afternoon, and just you might as well not fight it. Just get some sleep. Well, when, when I fast... I find that sometimes I get sleepy, and not today for whatever reason. I guess I slept in a little bit, but, uh, you know, you, you have to work it out as best you can. And so I, I kind of chop things up into half-hour, 45-minute segments because I find that more than that, my attention span is not that great. I've got to change it. And so you may not follow perfectly what Mr. Armstrong was doing, but he was an unusual man that way. But it's something to strive for, and it's a pattern of study, of meditation, and of prayer. And and doing that over and over throughout the day so that it isn't just a day to go hungry. I think so often when we first come into church, that's what we do. We, We go to work. We do everything, just as Isaiah 58 says. You find your own pleasure, you do it. We just make it a day to go hungry. That's not what it's about. It's about drawing close to God, having that close relationship with our Creator, crying out to Him. And and what I find is toward the end of my fast, when I start out in the beginning, maybe my mind is all muddled and I can't concentrate very well, and maybe I have to take two or three naps during the day, but studying and praying, and toward the end of the fast, I find my mind is clear and I can talk to God in a way that, that I haven't for a while. And I hope that that's the way it is for you. You know, God has given us tools to develop a relationship with Him. He gives us prayer, study, and meditation. But the greatest tool that He gives us is when we take these three, the prayer, the study, the meditation, and they are accompanied by heartfelt fasting. So let's use this incredible tool that God has given to us And let us expect that as we truly humble ourselves before him, individually and collectively, as we cry out to him with our whole heart, and as we do this, again, individually and collectively, that he will bless us and bless our work.